what's going on everybody welcome back to inside the labyrinth podcast this episode is sponsored by no matter what apparel and valor supplements both companies are owned by first responders so let's give back to first responders who give back to us visit www.nomatterwhatapparel.com and use the code in all caps inside the lab for 10% off your total purchase visit www.valorsupplements.net and in all caps use the code RFR10 for 10% off your total purchase this episode was there's no words to this episode we had the honor and privilege to speak with Sweet Burns he is the owner and creator of 5th Set he's also one powerlifting coach of the year in 2016 for myself and Jay, we thank you, Sweet, for coming on the show, sharing your strength, experience, and hope with us and all the listeners, and really showing and teaching what resilience is. For anyone who's listening to this episode, you never have to give up hope because Sweet is a prime example of never giving up and coming back even stronger no matter what happens in life. For any questions or comments about this episode, please reach out to us. And if you guys have any other ideas or anything you want to talk about please reach out to myself or jay again thank you for supporting our podcast and have a great day and we're live welcome back to inside the labyrinth podcast season four episode six we're getting there, Jay. We yeah, are man. getting there. Uh, last episode, we had Leifa, pro strong woman. Uh, make sure you guys check that out. As you guys know, I'm Frank from Rough for Responders. Very excited for today. Really, really strong and intelligent dude. Can't wait to hear his life experience. Kind of mis- uh, mysterious to me. Don't really know much about him that he's a strong lifter. So can't really wait to see his mindset. But before we introduce him, I'm going to kick it over to my man. The one and only Jumpman Jay. Yeah, uh, it's me, Jumpman Jay. Um, here with the usual suspect, Frankie V. I'm <laughs> super excited for today, uh, only because, uh, like, I always say this, I probably say this every episode, Frankie is notorious for getting some great guests. Uh, so, um, you know, we did our little, you know, fact-finding uh, background checks, and this guy's a legit beast. Uh, so I'm literally... Super, super excited to, to, to get into this interview and learn more about this man. So I'm um, swinging back over to you, Frankie. We're going to get after this. All right, let's go. So we'll introduce 2016 Powerlifting Coach of the Year, owner of Keyhole Barbell and the creator of Fifth Set, my man, Sweet Burns. How are you doing, Sweet? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No problem, man. Thanks for coming on the show. So how are you doing right now? How is Sweet right now looking down on his feet? How is everything going on today? Honestly, life is good, man. I can't complain. You know, I have a beautiful girlfriend, beautiful baby. Um, I live in my church here. I have a, I bought, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I bought an old church that, uh, that's what Keyhole Barbell is. It was, it's about a 9,000 square foot church. And, um, I live in the, I live in the back, about 10 bedrooms in the back. I've been I've been I've been renovating it for the last <clears throat> most of the last year. I really started hammering down on renovations when the lockdown stuff happened because I was like, all right, 
fuck it. <laughs> I'm going to get this yeah. stuff. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a plumber now. I'm a carpenter now. You know, all these different things that I had to, these different hats I had to put on to get all this stuff done. But um, we're nearing the end. I still, now, you know, in all fairness, I still have some stacks of tiles and, and mortar and stuff here in my kitchen. <laughs> I'm looking at a few, <laughs> few, a few other minor, minor things that have to get done, but it was... I mean, it's night and day from how it was. This entire this entire kitchen, my kitchen's probably like 600 square feet, and it okay. was covered, covered in materials, just completely packed with materials, like stacked up like five feet high. It's almost completely gone. Most of the work's done, so life is good. Life is good right now. I really, you know, I don't know when I, I don't know when I, at any point in my life that I would have complained about life in the last, at least in the last 10 years or so, you know, maybe in the last 15. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of that's about perspective. That's, you yeah. know, experience. When you've been through really bad things, you realize how, how little, the things people complain about, how small they are, you know. <laughs> yeah, big, big time. Uh, yeah. We're, we're definitely going to get into how how that, uh, kind of how the, the gym and the church uh, was started. Um, before we get there, let's jump right into how Sweden was in high school. Bring us back to that. Did you enjoy it? Did you like it? Did you play any sports where you're lifting then? Or kind of how was that experience for a, for a young Swede? Yeah, Where'd sure. You grow up and all that good stuff. Okay. So uh, I grew up in like Upper Darby area. Well, actually, I grew up in Chester first, if anybody knows anything about the Philly. Yeah, okay, Chester. Yeah, okay. Chester's a pretty serious area. It's like, yep. I think, number two murder capital of the United States per capita, which you know, it was, and it was equally rough growing up there. I grew up out a block from the Sun Village projects in between two projects in Chester. So it was a rough neighborhood. I can remember I had my nose broken by the time I was 10. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was a different people. And uh, my mom uh, managed a deli right there. So I was very, you know, involved in the community like everybody knew who my mom was everybody kind of knew who i was and uh we moved to upper darby like around the time of middle school that area that time period and um so through middle school i got in a lot of trouble in middle school but <laughs> i i did wrestle and i was already lifting weights i probably started lifting weights when i was around 12 years old and oh, wow. I, and um, yeah, because I was into, when I was a little kid, man, I loved the idea of pro wrestling and how wrestlers looked. You know, I was like, I want to be like those guys and like He-Man and, you know what I mean? Skeletal. Yeah, I, think, I, I think that was most of us. I think right. a lot of us. Right. Yeah. It's probably because it look at the heroes when you grew up. So who's your yeah. go-to hero, the wrestling wrestling world? Uh, well, in wrestling, I mean, at that, see, at that time when I was a kid, kid, like I was really only into wrestling when I was really small, you know. But uh, like at that time was like the Ultimate Warrior, Hulk Hogan. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was gonna say the same for me. Yeah, Ultimate Warrior, Hulk Hogan. <laughs> um, those guys were like the pinnacle to me. So of course, of course. and then later, later, you know, like I love the Rock and guys like that. You know, like, Rock and Stone Cold were my two guys. As a, now, that was like high school for me. So. Um, and they're the, they were the ones that kind of made the sport like a little bit bigger than what it already was. Like it had notoriety, but when The Rock and, and Stone Cold 
were running around, I think that's when wrestling was at its peak. People think it was Hulk Hogan and them. I don't really feel like it was Hulk Hogan, like Mr. Wonderful and those guys. I think it was really The Rock, Stone Cold. They were the ones that really brought it up to where it is now, I think. That charisma, because prior, yeah. prior to that, it was it was like they were they were acting, but it was obvious acting. It was like yes. no one no one was like kind of tongue in cheek. No one really wasn't like there was any suspension of disbelief, but like with the rock and people like that, they started to bring legitimate acting into it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Action. It was people actually cared what happened, you know. Yep. Whereas yeah. before, let's just see what happens. You know. Yeah. And, uh, but that was cool. I mean, that was that was something I guess that did impact. I think comic books impacted me in the early years more than anything else. I always say I feel like I was raised by Wolverine, you know? Oh, man, let me tell you, Weapon X, that Wolverine, <laughs> a.k.a. Logan, was my guy growing up. Um, only because his superpowers were just, to me, was everything I wanted to be. You know what I'm saying? Like that that adamantium skeleton and his super healing power and just those, yeah. like, uh, those animal senses that he had. To me, I just thought he was badass because this dude literally had to get up on you. And get after you with those claws. So he didn't have like you know like Cyclops with the rays or or like Gambit with the with the cards. He had to get up on you and do stuff to you. So I mean, to me, I thought Logan was the guy. So got a lot of things in common. I like this. And he never backed down. And him oh, versus yeah. the Hulk. And you can see I got he Deadpool. Was... I got Deadpool picture up there. And then yeah. in the corner there, just set up a uh, um, a whole. Oh, wall mounted of uh all the pops like those different little like uh like we got what wolverine in there um the yeah, recent Wolverine movie the wo recent wolverine movie with the little girl x uh i think it was 23 or 26 so yeah. that's cool. all right but um yeah i mean i never really considered how much those things like that have have an impact on your adult life you know the, the childhood stuff but like I said, yeah, I think that was definitely like my one of my most significant male role models, and to the point where like I even feel like I talk like Wolverine, and I, and I didn't even realize it until I would say stuff, say like "kid" all the time and "bub." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like his lines that he would say, I realized, and I'm like, man, that probably came from a comic book when I was a kid. That's so funny, you know. But that was, yeah, that was my idea of what a guy was supposed to be like, and. I turned out, I think, very similar to that, um, with a lot of speed bumps on the way. But not to get too far off of what we were talking about, I started wrestling in middle school, and I had already been lifting, so I had muscles, you know? <laughs> like, I was already, like, probably, I don't know, 13, 14. I, had, I was very muscular for someone that age because I had already started, you know, I got a Hulk Hogan weight set, the American Hero weight set. Oh, yeah. I had like the the thing that spins on it that was red, the bar. Yeah, yeah, uh, I remember that. Everybody <laughs> remembers that, like sand weights. Yeah, but yeah, I would do ten sets of ten every day: bench press, military press, rows. At that point, I didn't know anything about squatting yet because I didn't have anything to put it on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I had a bench, so we did that, and um, and then when I started doing wrestling, it was because there was a girl who I was like madly in love with middle school. Okay. Uh, we were friends, but she wasn't really, I don't think, you know, she wasn't into me on that level, but she was like, you should wrestle. And I was like, I'm wrestling. <laughs> she was a cheerleader. So she was like the head cheerleader. So she would always be there at the wrestling matches. So I, I never lost. And, uh, he was showing I, out. That's what he was doing. 
or she's <laughs> watching me. I'm gonna have to I flex was, on this guy real quick. I actually got disqualified one time for slamming somebody and not going down with them because I knew I couldn't <laughs> beat him, but I know I can slam him and at least that way he'll look bad. <laughs> and uh, I hear that. Nautilus <laughs> machines too. We had to do the, the circuit training, which back then, nowadays they call it CrossFit. Back then we used to, or Metcon, but back then we used to call it wrestling workouts, you know, where you had to do back to back, to back on the Nautilus machines. And that was that was really my first, um, like sort of programmed training, and then into high school. Well, I got in a lot of trouble. Even starting in middle school, I had like I was always I was in a gifted program. I was in a like I had a very high IQ, at, like which they you know tested at a young age and put me in special programs for that. But my behavior was, you know, I just was very rebellious. I had like a sort of defiance to what was to what anyone wanted me to do that wasn't what I wanted to do and if someone didn't give me a good explanation why I should do it I just wouldn't and I would do something else and uh oftentimes those things were really bad like so I would get in fights and get in trouble and I ended up getting thrown out of my middle school and put in a corrective school and by the time I was in a corrective high school it was like my third or fourth school that they threw me into within the course of maybe a year and a half. And they just kept tossing me out of each school I would go in, I would last maybe a month or two and they'd kick me to the next one. And uh, the last one, it was a guy named Mr. Davis, who was like Coach Davis. He was the person that first set up how we did uh, powerlifting and taught me how to squat. You know, and uh, it was just basic stuff, like basically held a, a broomstick on my back and was like, keep your back straight, squat down. Yeah, yeah. Like, hold it on there to be to make sure it was straight, like just make sure <laughs> it's straight. And I'm like, all right, and did that for a while. And then eventually I was squatting the bar and I got all the records in that school. We had a meet when I was 16 and one when I was 18. And um, how, how big were you when you were 16? Just like, so just give people like an idea of like your specs now. So how, like, how much do you weigh now? And how much did you weigh in high school? I'm about 270 pounds now. Okay. High school. How, how tall was, are you? 6'2". Six 6'2"? Two. Six two? Jesus. Okay. <laughs> so in high school, I was only, I was only 200 pounds. So I competed in the 198s. Okay. But I benched 400 pounds my senior year. Yeah. So Ooh. I was like. I have long arms. So if you can see me at, at 200 pounds at 198 benching 400 pounds, it looked impossible. Yeah, <laughs> like, oh, yeah like 200 just the pounds sheer physics would, of it. When you're not a when you're not a fat dude, 200 pounds is you know muscular even on a six. Absolutely. But it's not like you expect somebody like it just keeps going. You know what I mean? It's like it, it, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Because like, you got to look at the dimensions. You know what I mean? Like. Six yeah. two, that means you got long levers. So they're probably looking at you, right? Two hundred pounds, pretty lean. Like this guy ain't gonna be able to to to, to push this four hundred. So uh, just because looking at the sheer physics of it, they're probably like, eh, I don't know, because you usually see a bigger guy with those kind of numbers, you know. So that's fucking impressive, man. Whew. And at the time, everything was single ply. So these were okay. all. We had some gear for for the the students that did it, but it was like three bench shirts. One was way too big one was way too small and one was yeah. like a little bit loose so i mm -hmm. really 
nothing was my size. Nothing was like a size that would benefit me. So like I tried the different shirts, but I realized I could bench because I had been benching since I was 12. So I could bench gotcha. way more than, than they could even with the shirts. So yeah. I was like, I was like, well, do I have to wear the shirt? And my coach was like, nah, he was like, that's called raw. That's what hard asses do. And now this was right. <laughs> and I was like, I'm fucking raw from now on. <laughs> like, you know, I guess we're doing raw, you know? And uh, so the, those meets were both, were both raw. And I had a really, I had a really strong squat and deadlift too. Like unbelievable. Once I started really training the squat and deadlift, those just shot up and they were, I think that my squat was way more impressive than my bench, but to squat 600 pounds at 18 is pretty wild, you know? Ooh. Yeah, so I, I did all right. Louise. Yeah, now here I am, 20-something years later, trying to squat 900 pounds in single ply. So I gave in eventually and put the ply on, but it took, it took a few decades. Yeah, it took a few decades, right? <laughs> but yeah, that's, that was how I started with that, and that was, that was essentially my high school career in terms of athletics. Uh, it started in... It started in middle school into high school with wrestling, and I did really good with the wrestling, but it just was, when it wasn't at that other school, I never thought about it again. You know what I mean? It just kind of wasn't yeah. something. And it's not like you can go to States or something just because you want to. You have to be at a school that, you know. Yeah. You're actually training and on a team, you know, so. You got to work with what you got. Absolutely. 100%. So Things went from there. Uh, I'll just continue down that little rabbit hole. So from there, I started competing in bodybuilding. So actually after high school, I decided that like the next logical step in my mind was bodybuilding. Bodybuilding, yep. Yeah, I thought powerlifting was more simple than bodybuilding, but I didn't really understand mm -hmm. what I the powerlifting at the time because I just happened to be good because Genetically, I was good. I didn't really understand how to modify all the factors. So when I wanted to do bodybuilding, I realized that I was going to have to have a better understanding of the science that I did and how my body worked and how to manipulate calories and you know macronutrients and so forth to get the results I wanted. Mm -hmm. And uh, I spent about two years doing that and learning and competing. I competed. I did actually did my first bodybuilding contest right around the time I did right around the time I did my first my second powerlifting meet. Oh, wow. So <clears throat> I was still a teen, yeah. And um oh, she got started relatively early. Yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. Thank what God year did you graduate around. high school? 1998. Okay. Okay. So yeah, so I'm glad I did, thank God, because that was what pulled me through everything. You know. Honestly, I was like in a really rough place when I started the bodybuilding and it gave me some focus on. So, you know, I actually right at that time, my, my first girlfriend died in a car accident, like in like a head on oh. collision. Wow. And yeah, she was, she was only 17. And so it was, yeah, she was, a, she was a sweetheart, but that's, that set me reeling for, for years. Yeah, so, especially at that age, man, because. Right, right. I mean, so establishing relationships and how, how they work and stuff at that time so that really i just had nothing else to invest in but bodybuilding i did i got ended up getting a membership at the gym for the first time which before that i was just working out in my basement 
Got you. And uh, it was a pretty hardcore gym. And people were, we were really pushing each other. It was in like a, a strip mall. It was under a strip mall, like in the basement. And it was, uh, we were training at night and it was a pretty, it was a pretty serious setup. Like the guys in there, honestly, I was thinking about this the other day. I know two or three of them are dead now, <laughs> you know? And I think a lot of that just comes with the psychology of people that are into lifting on that level needed, you know, for other reasons, it's filling some psychological hole for them. Yeah. And it certainly was for me, but, you know, you know, hey, I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, God's grace, <laughs> I'm able to uh, still be alive and doing well now. You know, a lot of people I realized that came from that, that same beginning didn't, you know. And yeah, uh, that's, that's like a crucial part, man. Like people that come from environments that, that your upbringing kind of sounds like mine. Uh, yeah. And I had a lot of friends that are no longer here um, just because of some decisions that they made as young men. You know, and, you know, because we, we all are given a choice in life, right? So, you know, you can either go, you get to that fork in the road, you can go left or right. And, you know, some of us go left, some of us go right. And a lot of people, you know, in their youth, they don't have that decision-making ability. They're usually just going to go with the masses because if everybody else is doing this, I'm just going to do what everybody else is doing. And they don't really have, you know, the figures around them to really tell them like, hey, you know, you shouldn't be doing X, Y, and Z. And they'll tell you when you were a kid, you know, when you're a little boy, when you're out there like 10, 11 years old doing dumb shit, they'll tell you, listen, man, we, you know, we don't want you out here. I don't want you getting involved in this. But as you start to become, you know, a young adult, a teenage age, like you start to make decisions for yourself because they can tell you all they want. I don't want to see you on this corner at this time or hanging out with these dudes. And uh -huh. it's up to you to kind of definitively put your foot down and say, all right, I'm not going to hang out with these cats. I'm not going to be in this type of neighborhood. So just the result of people making those type of decisions. I lost a lot of friends just to like street violence. Um, mm -hmm. Guys that are just, you know, made the wrong decision 20 years in prison, you know, yep. or, or even worse, you know, lifers. So um, and, uh, the fact that you went through all of that and were able to kind of navigate through that says a lot about your character. Not without, uh, not without quite a few speed bumps though, you know, but oh, I man, think- That's part of life, you know, yeah, speed bumps are necessary. What you were saying um, about how, like, and I've always said this to other people, too, especially the younger people, when they tell me, like, oh, well, this dude was telling me, like, oh, you know, like, I shouldn't buy this from him. And, like, oh, I should. I'm like, yeah, but did he sell it to you? <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> you don't give a fuck. You don't care about it. You don't you. care. Yeah, they act like they do, but they don't, you know. Exactly. It's an act, you know what I mean? And that's most people. Anyone that's doing something that's going to be harmful to you, they either, they won't do it. They won't leave it to you to say, hey, you know. And when you're a kid, whether you're whether you're 10 or whether you're 18, you don't know. You know what I mean? A lot of times you don't have enough life experience really to navigate, like you were saying, those decisions. And if you don't have solid male figures, if you don't have like father type figures, situation, you know, you don't know who to listen to. You know exactly. what I mean? I did have a few of those. And I, you know, that's not to say that you're even going to listen because sometimes <laughs> you have someone or someone that's trying to help you and you just not listen because you're not ready. You know, a lot yeah. of this experience based and some of it's genetic, you know, some of us have a predisposition to behave a certain way. I was going to say that. Yeah. A lot of it is genetic. I know, do. And, and the thing is like, you can have those same genetics that predispose you to violence and, you know, hot temper and so forth. And you can 
you can learn to manage yourself and to navigate your life in such a way that you don't have to be in prison and you don't have to, you know, there's disagreeableness is just a trait, man. It's just, a, you know, just like conscientiousness or a good trait, disagreeableness can be mitigated. And I, it's something that I've had to work on myself has probably been the biggest issue for me is, is that is having conflict with other people and learning how to resolve it in a, in a, in a more thing with me. I throw them fists, not, <laughs> you know, or, or worse, you know? And, uh, yeah. How to solve something intellectually, I think takes a lot more restraint and, and intelligence than it does to, to just clobber somebody. You know what I'm saying? Um, discourse, like having the ability to like, maybe you have something that I, know, you know, I always yeah, like yeah. that assumption. Maybe there's something that I'm missing that you're not, that's, that may not be the case too, but it might take a lot to convince me that I'm wrong, but I'm open to hearing it, you know? And open I, to I, hearing it, yeah. For a long time I wasn't, you know? And, uh, but I did I did go to prison when I was um, 23 years old. I went to prison for three years and that, you know, that was what it was. That was a turning point in my life. I think most people go to jail and that's it. They just continue to go to jail forever. And for me, <clears throat> that wasn't the case. I got out. I never had any trouble again, you know, um, in terms of the law. What do you and think was the uh, was the reasoning in that? Uh, jail was like it was like school for me. I used it. It was an opportunity for me to read a lot. And I, I developed fist set when I was in prison. I tested it when I was in prison. That was the first. That was the first incarnation of it. You know, that was the first first version of it and uh now, what changed. were you reading when you were when you were incarcerated oh, what have you getting into stuff by Verkashansky and and also a lot of you know philosophy Nietzsche a lot of different things I actually still have most of the books and you know quite frankly I, I was in I didn't at that point at that level of my development I, I wasn't where I am now and I didn't understand things as clearly as I do now and I like I have I still have the the complete works of Karl Marx over there, the uh, the the essential works rather of Marx, which is a book that I've I've had for now almost twenty years, and uh, I've read it probably fifteen twenty times, and I can remember the first time I read it, I thought, this is genius. This is what the world needs. Yeah. And then as I got a little bit older, I understood it, and I realized this is the last thing the world needs. The last thing the world <laughs> yeah. needs. I was going to say that. <laughs> as you get older, were From you what, older? Uh, were you like a lone wolf in there, uh, sweet, or did you surround yourself with guys that you could kind and trust, or kind of have the same mindset, or it was the opposite? Not a lot of people, obviously, maybe not a lot of people wanted to do what you're doing. It was mostly Spanish people. Um, I've always, you know, for whatever reason, I've always clicked with Spanish people. My family Spaniards, and I have a little bit of a comfort with that, I guess. And so most of the people that did. Uh, Fissa initially there were there was people in, in different gangs and stuff too there were people that were kings and but it was about 15 of us that did it and maybe five guys that i was really close with but the the rest of it, that I mean, everything we did was essentially geared around training you know i mean like in prison you live on dog food and my prison was the worst they closed it for human rights violations. The Department of Justice went in and, and closed it for torture and various other things that were, I mean, it's a, it's a nightmare. It's a shit show. Yeah. It's probably 
prison in the history of Pennsylvania correctional facilities. Ooh. It's closed now. Yes, yeah, it's, it's done. They actually did a secret investigation, Department of Justice did, and then they, you know, they tore them in the asshole and closed it down. There was something like four times the suicides of any other prison. So that was what initiated the investigation. Yeah, probably made a little spike there for them. The problem is there's really no, if you get into a, situ a situation like that where that system doesn't have checks in place, you know, where like the people that are supposed to be in oversight are not, it's a, like a, a prison's a bubble. You know what I mean? There's not much outside oversight, you know? So it just yeah. gets worse and worse. You know, it's like a corruption spreads, you know? Um, like a bubble. And uh, yeah, it was a bad deal. So there was... There was torture. There was all sorts of stuff. You know, there's, I know one guy got, he was strapped down to a bed with leather straps and electrocuted with a shock shield for 12 hours. And there was video of this. And, and department, that was not by any means isolated incident. I had bad stuff too. I was, I put together a food strike that started with those guys that I trained with because the food was awful. And come to find out it was, Somebody who was involved in the uh, administration in the prison owned the company that was doing the food service that they were buying the stuff from. And uh, so there was stuff, there was some frozen ground turkey that had been, it probably was, I want to say it was expired by five or seven years or something like that. It was significant. Oh, what the fuck? So they had so much of it that they were just, every meal was ground turkey. And it was like not edible, horrible. Now I would force it down, but it was it would like upset your stomach. So oh, we wow. I was like, well, if nobody eats anything from the cafeteria for like a week and just try and live on soups or whatever, and then put in six slips, if everybody puts in six slips and says they couldn't eat the food in the cafeteria, it'll go to whoever is oversight outside of the jail. Because in that medical stuff, there's no way they have to report medical stuff. So it worked, but they uh, they put me in the hole for 90 days, and that was really bad. I mean, wow. So 90 days of just isolated by yourself. 90 days in the hole, yeah, it's unbelievable. They keep the lights on all day. They turn them off. <laughs> I'm sorry, they keep the lights on all night. They turn them off all day. Uh, there was like, you know, shower for two weeks sometimes. Like, it's not how it's supposed to be, but that's how it actually is. They won't take you to the showers, like... It was a bad deal. I, I, to, to not go crazy, I just basically wrote with those little pencils on uh, six slips, like on the back. I wrote the beginning of the novel that I ended up finishing, but uh, you know, it's not something I'll ever release. It's when, it's when I was young as a writer, so I don't think I was really, like I was already working as a columnist before I went to prison for RX Muscle Magazine um, when it was in print. Can I ask, uh, you know, during those 90 days in the hole, like, what what was going through your mind? Um, I would I would try to relive past experiences to not go crazy because uh, humans need stimulus. You know what I mean? We're yeah, we're absolutely yeah. We're just to uh, you know we adapt to stimulus, and when you don't have any new, and that's why they say comfort kills because when you don't have any new stimulus to adapt to, your your mind starts to erode. Right play tricks and, and go on i was going to say did you, when you live that when you lived those light when you relived that did you say kind of relive it as in maybe a, a different ending to a movie 
or a different like, ending of the show? Like try to say I should have done this or maybe if this would have happened, I would have done this. Did that play a lot in your mind? Like day two or as I was starting to like crack, you know, and I was like, all right, well, I'm going to lose myself if I don't do something. So I was like thinking that I remembered things like that. And then I was like, no, I need something to focus on. So I started to write what will be the outline of the novel. And um, it was a, like a, a thinly veiled fiction novel that was sort of autobiographical. And that allowed me to really try to remember experiences, focus on those and record as many details as I could, you know, as I was able to recall at that time. And so doing that, I work on one scene, one part, and I work on another part, and it allowed me to put it all together in a way. And now these were all on the back of six slips because they're the only thing I could get. With a little tiny pencil, and they won't sharpen it. So I did just rub it against the floor, <laughs> but it was like stacks. Mm. And uh, I was able to take it. I, I had all that stuff hidden, and it wasn't like there's anything you know illegal or, or that I wasn't allowed to have, but I just didn't want to lose it. I didn't want anyone, I didn't want them to take it. So I took it with me and I ended up getting a typewriter when I got out of the hole. And everybody was so happy to see me when I got out of the hole because in that time, now we're getting pizza, all kind of stuff on the menu, like things that like everybody knew why. So. It's like a fucking movie, man. Like, yeah, like you're the martyr that came out and came back, you know? Yeah, I probably lost like 10 or 15 pounds, but I was huge at the time. I was probably 290. So wow. even though I starving i was <laughs> you know I mean? I was still, still still a large human being yeah yeah i was doing like push-ups and handstand push-ups whatever i could do you know I mean? pull-ups off the bed. started the handstand push-up before they were even started <laughs> right there's nothing else to do and i'll put right. my feet there's two bunks so i'll put my feet up on the top one and try and do push-ups that way like anything i could do to try and not lose strength or muscle but i, I mean obviously i lost some but it came right back when, and i was just it had like the rest of the time that I was in jail after that, there was really, everybody for the most part was cool. Now there's there's a lot of people in prison that like what people don't talk about. There's a lot of like mentally ill people in prison that are just pathological criminals. You know what I mean? Where there is no re correct way to interact, you know? And I mean, I had people try to kill me in jail. I had people try to stab me in jail, but obviously I'm still okay, so. I made it through, but that's not, you know, it's, it's not a situation I would ever want anyone to have to be in, especially not somebody that's prepared for it, you know, and uh, or that's, or that's, I should say that is equipped to deal with it, you know, because I know that the average person is not 6'2", 290, and I can't imagine if I wasn't, <laughs> you know, during that time period, I wouldn't have got the respect that I did, and I wouldn't have, you know, not to mention, I think that also with the training that helped a lot too, because people look to me for what to do. I've always been comfortable in that role in like a leadership, sort of a coaching type role, you know? Yeah. And studied, I studied psychology for the last few years and I'm hoping to go to law school in another year or so. I'm going to take the LSATs if I finish this psychology oh, degree. Nice. So, and, that I got I got to ask this question because you're kind of like you know this is why I love having the show and going through people like you man and uh you know first thanks for being so honest but um what do you think is how do I relate to the how do I say this like uh all right so when I was 16 I, I actually got arrested from BS misdemeanor like the job knows whatever and then I went through you know 
went, went through my uh, stuff recently, you know, six weeks in the hospital, six weeks in a rehab, just hit 13 months sober. And I never want, I never, thank you so much, man. I never want to go back to that, bro. I never want to go back to that. Um, it was a, a hard year in my life where I realized that I just never want to go back because it's not worth it. And I know how life was before I started picking up and I know how life is after I started picking up and what our jobs and everything. Uh, you can't even live a life that you want to live. You know, not only if you add in your, you have your own life, life stressors, then you add in the job stressors and all that stuff. And it's, that's why we say, you know, the average age of a cop is between 57 and 66. So you retire at 50, you live 10, 15 years of your life, if that. So I never want to go back to that. And it's like, you know, just for today, I'm sober. And thank you, bro, for keeping me sober today, because this is already hit, hitting home for me. Um, and I think for me, being sober is because I want it. And I don't want to lose the love, my loved ones around me. And the success I've had in the past 13 months, I wouldn't trade it in for anything, anything in the world. What do you think it's different is, and that's what I'm trying to relate this to getting locked up or sobriety, because when you're using, if it's booze, if it's dope, right? If it's meth, you're like a fucking prisoner to yourself, man. Like, you know, I felt that I was like, I was a prisoner to my own self. And no matter what, I was free walking around outside. I felt like I was so trapped. So the difference between the guys now physically in jail with you and stuff um, that, or that never make it out, right? Do you think it's because, and I think it's the same way sobriety, they don't give a shit or they don't have the skills or they're just so comfortable of staying in there and they're kind of okay with that. You know what I mean? So maybe um, like shit that you saw that what's the difference that you like, look at you, you, it's a successful journey you've had already. We haven't even hit the rest of it, but you know, the gym, the fifth set, the coaching, the want to be a lawyer, like guys getting stuck in the hole, they would, they would break. Jay knows that they, they would break. They would never even who knows what would happen, man? You know what I mean? So you really are a prime example of making it through the labyrinth, you know, and coming out. I had a, you know, I think that I had a, I'm not, I don't want to say that it's a good thing that I had a rough upbringing, but it prepared me for that. You know, I feel like everything up to that point was preparing me to be ready to be by myself completely. And uh, that's what that was. And I think that that was a reality check for me because that was the first time I truly realized that every human is alone. You know, like ultimately you're alone, you know, that's what it comes down to. So you have to be right with yourself and you have to value yourself. And um, at that time, that was when I first started getting really in, into my faith and so forth. And I've certainly had different periods over the years, even since then, when I haven't been happy with the type of man I was and so forth. But during that time, that was really the first time I learned how to lean on God. And for me, that was everything. That was because uh, I felt like I couldn't fail God. It's easy to fail yourself, easy to give up on yourself. But if you really believe that, you know, I'll never put something, you know, on your back that you can't carry, which I do believe that, you know, it's amazing the stuff you can accomplish in that type of situation. And just to kind of touch on something you were talking about, like, I was definitely abusing substances before I was in prison. And that is a major difference. That is a big part of the difference. Um, as far as people, why do pe certain people never be able to get out of prison? And, and I also like, you know, to, to kind of kind of expand on that a little bit. Like when I got out of prison, I was in, uh, I was in the rooms. Like, so I did the same stuff that you're, that you're doing now. I did that for probably six years. And um, 
preface that by saying that everybody's experience is definitely not like mine and most people's are not, but I don't, I'm not really involved in that anymore. And, um, you know, obviously my life's not unmanageable. I, I, I was able to resolve the things that were causing the problems. So like whenever you have somebody that's leaning on substances, it's typically there's some unresolved stuff there, but beneath the surface. And that takes yeah. step work and all that stuff is to get to that and, you know, address it and hopefully heal it. And, you know, I was able to do that. And thank God for that. I still, not to say I don't suffer. I still, I think that you can't live without suffering. You know, that's all, part of life. Yeah, man. Suffering is essential. Your, your parents are going to die. Your loved ones are going to die. You know, your wife is going to die. You're going to die. You're going to get some disease. You're going to be weaker. You know, you're going to, you're going to get weaker. Age is going to change you. You know, you're not going to be the way you once were. And that's suffering. This existential suffering is inescapable, but being able to deal with that suffering, you know, having, having the means to deal with it, that's what it comes down to. You know, you're going to, you're going to suffer. And if you accept voluntarily embrace suffering, sacrifice and say, Hey, this is what I got to do. This is, I'm choosing this. I'm choosing this. It's not something that's choosing me. You know, I've decided what I want to do. I want to sacrifice. No one's making me do it. I want to do the right thing. I love the fact that you said that we have a choice. You know, you have to decide to choose. I always tell people that all the time. Like, God gave us free will. And with that, you could choose to do whatever it is that you, that you desire to do. I mean, free will makes us human you know what i mean and i i don't think people really understand that so when you, you hear somebody who has walked the path that you walked and they, and they start to talk about choice and being able to make decisions you have to decide yourself that That's you want to make this change something you hear a lot from people is like oh i didn't have a choice choice I yeah i hear that a lot man you did have a fucking yeah. you did still out man Every day. I, I always tell people that it's like, like in my neighborhood, there was six, like there was six of us, right? So there's six of us that grew up Miss all same parents, same type of upbringing, right? And there's six different results. And that is right. because everyone had a choice. Each one of us were individuals. And at some point you had to make a decision as to what path you wanted to walk. I, it, it kind of irks me when I hear people say, I didn't have a choice. We all have a choice. I try not you know, to ever, I try not to ever be arrogant with that because like like I understand that I'm I have certain we all do have certain gifts that make certain mm-hmm. things possible for us to do that you know what I mean and now someone might have the ability to choose and the wherewithal to choose and the strength to stick to that decision and not know it and yeah. know it you know hopefully it doesn't take going to prison you know, the idea is I think that fathers and men that are willing to play that role are crucial. You know, it's, it's for, for young men, it's an inescapable need. You have a need to have someone who is, shows you how to be a gentleman. It shows you how to be, you know what I mean? Because the nature is the opposite. Nature of humans is to be not gentle. Yeah. And uh, that's, if I will that's i'm never going to be gentle <laughs> i'm going to be quick you know yeah. <laughs> that's not I, and know. i i wholeheartedly agree with you with that i mean that was a huge role and why i didn't end up on you know the other side i had 
I had two fears in my life. One was my physical father, <laughs> and two was my father God. I know that's and right, <laughs> and those were my two fears right there, and that's what kind of kept me in line. And like this whole conversation, I'm actually getting like goosebumps talking to you, man. Yeah, a lot of this stuff is is hitting home, and I think I needed this conversation today. Like I needed to hear this stuff to know that. There's other people out here that have that have walked a similar path that that you know that I've walked through, and okay. I mean yours is slightly different than mine, but it's almost like I'm pretty sure we were all in the same pot. You know what I mean? Like we're around the same age group. You know, I, I'm pretty sure we grew up in the same type of environment, and um, you know, and I'm listening to what you're saying. I could tell you're an extremely intelligent human being, and I think that that plays a role in, in how you responded to some of these adversities. You know what I'm saying? Like the fact that you have that intelligence to, to, right. to navigate through these things, man. Um, that it's remarkable. Great. I think it's grace, you know, like I do something with my intelligence. I do more with it now than I did before. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know what I'm saying? And like any gift, like being able to do anything, like being able to dunk a basketball, like being able to be really good at math, you know, things is, there's certain gifts people are you know uh talents you know like the parable of talents not yeah i mean it, it is what it is not trying not to get too without getting too spiritual with it like you realize that life is about fear of obstacles fear of dangers and if if you submit and fear to the idea that there is a god that is more powerful than you and that is all powerful all of a sudden you don't really need to be afraid of anything anymore <laughs> except that yeah Except yeah. that, exactly. And that, that makes everything more manageable. It makes it so you can deal with it. You know, nothing's going to be easy. And I don't, I wouldn't want it to be easy. Because then you ever get, you ever, you ever get done something that's really hard? Like a good example would be this bathroom I just renovated. Like I have some history. I had a contracting company before I moved out here in Philly. And like, so I have some history doing this stuff with plumbing. It's something I've always shied away from. You know, I, I hate plumbing hate the idea of it but i had to like jackhammer the floor up and put a new drain in and run so i could have the shower and install the shower and do all these things that i really didn't have much experience doing and so it was like a fearful endeavor but it taught me to kind of trust a little more or reminded me rather you know and uh try to make the right decisions but when it's all said and done it was something that's very difficult to accomplish and when it turns out the way you want there's nothing like overcoming an obstacle in terms of like yeah. that, that dopamine reward you get, like you're like, yeah, I did that, I figured that out, and it adds to the confidence, it adds to your ability to, to face other obstacles. So like, I don't want an, you know, I just want a life that I'm capable of, that I'm capable of really like, you know, that's going to be challenging and allow me to do my best. Like with the powerlifting stuff, like I don't know how much further I could go. I don't know what other problems I could solve. Um, with the methodology with fist set, I mean, it's soup to nuts. I worked every formula out. I worked and corrected them for 15 years. I took as much data as I could get. And when I was able to get more data from various sources, I used those data to improve the formulas. And there's been some minor improvements from the first book to the second book. But essentially, between those protocols and formulas, you have a 90% success rate. I've never even heard of anything like that in powerlifting. So <laughs> that's, you know, that's, it's not gonna get any better. Now, I mean, could I get another 
two percent maybe but with the amount of work that you're gonna have to put into that is it worth it no so yeah. i feel very challenging and it was challenging for over a decade and i did my best with it you know and uh now i'm at a point where i needed a new focus so about two years ago or so i started obsessively studying psychology mainly because i wanted to understand you know i wanted to understand more about implicit human motivation like the things that we're motivated by that we don't understand you know and there's there's really three basic things it's uh, intimacy achievement and power you know and when you break it down to that and you have more of an understanding of that you have more of an understanding of where all problems come from especially problems with like communism and socialism so i was talking about before about how marxist marxism sounds like sounds good it looks good on paper until you realize like somebody, <laughs> somebody's got to divvy that money up <laughs> right and what has happened, allocated somewhere yeah and what has happened every time that someone's been in charge of that uh hundreds of millions of people total have died in the 20th century as a result of communism and socialism. And the reason for that is exactly what I just said, the implicit motivation of humans that we're not even aware of. Um, people want to, to be in power, they wanna have achievement. And uh, so stripping the idea of both of those things from a society ensures that there, now there's a ladder that nobody can climb except the people that are already at the top. Whereas I think a lot of people are persuaded that the opposite is true. There's less, there's less opportunity for, uh, for upward movement in a communist society than there is in a capitalist society. And, you know, just to think like me, I'm a, I'm a writer, you know, like realistically my profession is I'm a writer. I've written a few books and uh, I mostly live off of royalties. I travel, teach seminars, work with groups of people up to like 30. Um, I do like public speaking and things like that spoken at some schools and so forth um but for the most part like everything that everything that i've done everything that has benefited me in any way has been a, has been a result of capitalism right so like i started at the very bottom rung like with literally nothing and like when i say nothing i mean i got out of jail like i didn't have money for the bus you know and uh I got a job and I started, I worked in, um, in an iron shop, like a really shitty one called Intercon where everybody was convicts. And uh, so I was like, I gotta get really good at welding. <laughs> and I did, I developed a, a good skill set of welding to the point where the supervisor said, I can't ever pay you more than I'm paying. The last raise he gave me, he's like, wanna try at a different shop, well, I'll give you the best recommendation I can give you. And so I went to a nicer shop that started, like their starting rate was higher than I was making. And I told the guy, I was like, yeah, my boss, the supervisor said, he'll give me a great recommendation. And he was like, well, I'm gonna call him. So he called him and he came back out. And he was like, would you take a welding test today? I said, yeah. I mean, he started me at $20 an hour, which I couldn't believe that. I was like, whoa. Yeah, blown away with that number, yeah. $20 an hour, I was like, whoa. And then before I knew it, you know, within a, four or five years I had worked my way up to I guess within four years I worked my way up to top rate which was 42.50 in union and in, in uh ironwork I was like wow this is amazing you know that I could make that sort of money it wasn't what I wanted to do but I knew that was what I had to do to climb the ladder so I saved my money I started doing contracting on the side 
and I saved up enough to eventually buy this church. I was still doing all my coaching. I was even working with, you know, NFL players and stuff, but it wasn't, it wasn't enough to, to carry me. You know what I mean? So I had to, I realized I had to reduce my expenses and get into a situation where I'd be able to focus on writing and teaching. So that was when I bought the church. I bought it for cash with all, all my savings. I sold my contracting company to my partner and took the rest of that money and sold my motorcycle and used all that to buy the equipment. And I fabricated a lot of it myself, bought this church, renovated that. It was probably 10 years ago that I first started renovating it and doing all that. And uh, that was when I was able to really write books. And now this is kind of the core of the story of what I was talking about with how how capitalism has been awesome for me. <clears throat> I wrote the first fifth set book. Elite found out about it, Elite FTS. Um, I had sent a copy to a friend of mine and he passed it on to people that eventually passed it on to Dave. And Dave was like, hey, <laughs> you know, like, hey, so we would like to sell your book, you know, this is legit. And I was like, well, thank you. So they, they sold it and I found a royalties off that, but I put it on Amazon. Right? Like anybody can put a product on Amazon. Anybody can. There's no one gonna stop you from doing that because they make money. That's it's incentivized. That's how capitalism works. You know? Um, Amazon makes a ton of money by selling other people's stuff. And what more fair way is there to get paid than I write a book, it's a good book. I, I put a lot of work into it for 10 years and I sell it. And everybody that buys it, I get money. If it's and if it's good, they're gonna tell other people this book is good, this type of training is great, and then you'll sell more. And if you sell more, you make more money. And I write a subsequent book. And then I wrote a book of poetry, which sold more than any of those books. <laughs> it was just wow. I did that for myself. I was like, I want to write a book of poetry. I've been writing poetry. Yeah, I love that. I did it for myself. Look at that right there. And look, yeah, I did that for me. I was like, I uh, this is for me. I don't care if I made a cent on the clues about ghost book, but I made more on that. It was number one for four days on Amazon. I made more on that than any of the fifth set books all put together, you know, and uh, still a regular income stream. My point is that would be impossible in a communist situation. I mean, it's, yeah, absolutely. You can't climb the ladder where it, 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 all it does is put everybody at the bottom. You know what I mean? <laughs> With no upward movement. It's, it's a bigger bottom. So it looks a little bit better, but it's not better. You know what I mean? There's huge issues with that sort of stuff that like even places that aren't completely communist or that aren't even socialist and they move into like a, a, a universal healthcare like Canada, you got wait lists. You got someone like tears a rotator cuff and has to wait nine months to get the surgery a year because considered it's considered not a necessary surgery. Yeah, it's not essential, yeah. Yeah, it's not an essential not something that's going to kill you right now and now my dear friend greg kovacs who was the biggest bodybuilder of all time had a heart defect had a valve defect and waited 10 years for surgery they finally did the surgery and he died afterwards Whew. imagine waiting 10 years while your heart's getting worse and worse and worse but you're not you're not dying right now you're still healthy so it waits till you're not that's the sort of stuff that people don't understand in this country how lucky we are how fortunate we are we are blessed as a country, I mean, a, a perfect, a lot of stuff that, that could be improved. And I, and I definitely think it should. And that's my goal. That's why I'm going to law school is I would like to get into politics. I'd like to get into legislation and, you know, change things, you know, in a positive way. But not only have you, and I was going to say, sorry to cut you off, but you lived it. 
you've lived, you're a prime example of living. It's like, how can you, you know, become a recovery coach or top powerlifter coach or, uh, you know, sobriety if you've never went through it and lived it, you know? And that like the conversation we just had brought me back to my original, one of the questions I asked you was like, what do you think the difference is, you know? And it's like, and, and Jay hit it too. It's like, well, some of the guys might not have the same environment that we have when we got out or family or friends or loved ones, but it's that one simple choice of if I don't pick up today, then at least my day, my day should, should be okay. You know, depending on the things I can control. That's if I don't go out, if I don't go out and, 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 and sell and, and sell, you know, sell this ounce, or if I don't go, you know, rob this person or steal this car, then my day is going to be okay. Cause I can control it no matter what happens. And then you have to remember, what I can control. And, you know, you talk about the runes and stuff. Um, I'm, I'm again, I'm happy you brought that up. Like I'm on my, on my sixth step, but it's like, if I can just go out and not pick up today, I know I'm, I already know I'm ahead of the game. My life is going to be, is going to be good because I'm in control of the car. Now, like you're saying, you know, that speed bump, I, I can control when I'm going to hit it now. You know what I mean? Right. So I, I'm, I'm really happy you, you, you brought that up. I want to hit that point. And now for our listeners, I know it, and it, exactly real quick what Elite FTS is, right? Live, learn, pass on. This is exactly what it is. Um, long story short, I guess, can you kind of explain what Fifth Set is or kind of um, maybe in yeah, a few the, minutes? Like, for the what, listeners who don't know what it is, yeah. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to explain what that is. Um, so Fifth Set is essentially, it's a methodology for training and competition in the sport of powerlifting, right? What I did was, in this case, what I do in every case in my life is I attempted to systemize something that is a complex series of decisions that need to be made based on uh, events, based on information that's happening in real time, right? So when you, the idea is to be able to take a complex system and sort of hand it to someone who doesn't understand all the mechanisms at play and give them, arm them with just the information that they need to make the right choice. So if this, then this, that's how math proofs work. You know, when you write a mathematic proof, we go, if this, then this, if this, then this. And that's a logical train that gets to a proof, right? So that, that kind of teaches you how, that's how you prove something. So it's the same thing with this. If this happens, we do this. If this happens, we do this. Only they're, they're more simple. So it's not one thing necessarily leading to another. It's you have a range that you can select for your attempts, for example, like in the competition. I'll give you a good example will be my attempt selection protocol, which has improved over the years. The first book, everything was 104% on the thirds based on, and that's based on real data. That's based on your own performance data recently enough in your training, which, you know, we're controlling. So we know when is a good time to cut that off. So we have the right figures we need to accurately be able to do this. But I found there was some deviation on the third attempt bench press because I keep, you know, meticulous records. So otherwise, how can you find out what's working and what's not if you don't keep track? And I did that with everyone I worked with. And when I got the, when I released the first book, I got more data. I got more because I put in there, it was in, there's an email address too to submit your results from meets and you have to have com, commit, you have to have completed a, a precedent number of mesocycles and a peaking cycle in order for it to work. But if you've done that, you're able to, you know, give me your data and let me know how you did. And um, like, so in other words, you did follow the protocol and did you fail or did you get successful attempts? And at that time we had a lot of deviation that was bringing me down into the lower eighties and it was all third attempt bench press failures. So I was able to correct it 
you know, I was able to try two different percentages and they worked. And the one that ended up working was with an upper limit of 102 and a half percent on bench press. And uh, that fixed everything that brought us up to over 90%. And I'm not, I'm not aware of anyone having done anything like that, you know, with taking it that seriously. And so for me, that, that's, how I, that's how I address everything in my life, because I want to be able to make decisions quickly that are going to be good decisions and not have to go through a complex process every time I do it. So if I have a rule of thumb, you know, a rigid sort of calculator or formula, that's what I, that's what I did with this set. I made the whole system into that. So it's just, you follow these templates. These exercises are interchangeable with these exercises. You can choose if you want to switch these out, but just run them a whole mezzo. So the first version of the book was very simple. I knew that powerlifters are not the best with reading comprehension as a group. We, uh, <laughs> we have Facebook evidence than Facebook because you'll see people arguing about shit on a post. I'm reading it from the outside perspective. I'm like, he didn't even fucking say that. <laughs> arguing about something. That's not even what it says. You read the post. You know what I mean? And that's, that's, that's what I'm dealing with for, for, uh, for this. So I knew that it was going to have to be really easy to understand. And I knew that if enough people tried the, the simplest version of it, it would work well enough that it would get a good a good rap. So I used the opportunity that Dave gave me with that. And um, after the first book, I wrote Evolutions, which is a much more in-depth version of everything. And that's the, the, so I have an MSM sequence system, which is a type of periodization. And that's what I use with like my really advanced lifters, like my champion lifters. And um, so I started trying to use that with the general public. And I wondered, is there a way that I can make this simple enough that everybody could use it? And sure enough, that was that. So essentially the reason that, so that's a good, that's a high level overview of how this set evolved and developed, you know, in, in more recent years. But as far as what's involved in it, it's a concurrent form of periodization, meaning, meaning that we're training multiple capacities at once in one period. Um, those are typically hypertrophy and strength for the most part, but also we're doing speed work, you know, dynamic type work. Um, a lot of, I would, I would simplify my, my, my uh, theory, my, my feeling about training for powerlifting in general by saying that I think movement is king. And I think that having good movement is necessary in order to be the best lifter that you can be learning good technique, treating each lift like a mechanical system rather than just like you're picking up weights. However you get it up, it's up. Um, and, and just kind of hammering that and reinforcing that, greasing that groove. So rather than doing a bunch of crazy assistance, we do do assistance work, but most of the volume that we do is on the lift, is on the competitive lift or an MSM, which is a mechanically similar movement is the secondary movement after that. And that is, uh, it's essentially like a shortened range of motion version of the movement. Like for bench press, that would be like doing a one board press. Uh, the reason for that is that we, we reach our target volume, this necessary for adaptation from the prolapin chart already in the main work. And then we could theoretically just stop there and that's, that should be plenty to develop the lift and it is. But I experimented with the idea of, well, what if I could continue to train in that movement pattern 
but with a shorter range of motion, eliminating the part where all the danger is. So like, for example, on bench press, almost all injuries happen on the amortization phase or they initially start, like a tear will always start on the amortization phase so on a reversal when the bar is at your chest. Um, now, sometimes it'll be on the descent right into that part, but it really, very rarely do you see it just tear, you know, unless it's, that's what's happening. So most injuries happen in that, those first two inches or so off of the chest and bench press. So we eliminate that and allow it to go a little bit further. And um, so by doing that, we just essentially wind up doing another anywhere between, you know, nine and 20 more reps total, depending on what protocol is being used with, you know, a shortened range of motion. So after that, there's not a ton of ton more work that needs to be done for that lift. So that's the lion's share of the session. That's not to say we don't do some bodybuilding stuff, we do, but by training the main movement. So my opinion is the best assistance movement for any given movement is that movement or some variation of it that's very similar to it. And you just adjust the rep scheme and set scheme based on or the protocol based on what the need is. So like maybe hypertrophy, you'd be doing something in the eight to 12 or to 15 rep range, but still doing bench press. You know, and uh, so we're able to include that by doing the AMRAPs. And the idea of the AMRAP is we really say as many good reps as possible. We don't want you doing any crap reps. So nothing that's really messed up. So you don't want to just keep going, you know, after you have breakdown. So in other words, when there's breakdown, that's the end of an AMRAP, in my opinion. Uh, but what that does is the first four sets, like the precedent sets, with that are in the same percentage range and i got the idea from post-activation potentiation right where they have sometimes they'll have there's a bunch of studies that were done where they take sprinters and they have them do a four rep max on squat repeatedly and then sprint and their sprint improves their movement improves because they've already sort of primed you think oh they'd be worn out well sprinting is not the same thing as doing a max lift mm -hmm. so it actually sort of primes it. So I got the idea, let's try it in the same percentages. That was what we did. And that was what we did when I was even in jail. So the idea was it started with 80% of the one rep max or the estimated max. And that would be for like four doubles. And the, the objective would be to get perfect movement on those four doubles. Now you won't, you know, obviously beginning set sucks more than the next one and the next one. By the fourth set, people are usually rolling. <laughs> and movement looks good and you're in a perfect position to, to take an AMRAP and not have breakdown. There's a, a priming effect. There's a sort of a, a, a neural adaptation that happens that's temporary. Um, it only lasts for that workout. Like it's not like the next workout, all of a sudden you're still great at, <laughs> you still are having that same performance you had by the fourth set, but it's a kind of activation and continually doing that does carry over into the way that you move for a max. Assuming that they're high enough, which they are with these protocols. So it essentially solves all the problems of developing athletes for the sport of powerlifting. Um, you know, it's easily modifiable for other things too. As most of my clients are military, um, work with a ton of military guys. Yeah, so obviously some law enforcement guys too. The same, it's the same boat. It's the same idea. 
uh, when are you not going to need in the course of in law enforcement? When are you not going to need uh, linear strength endurance, nonlinear strength endurance, these various capacities that are going to be involved in any sort of physical confrontation and interaction, you know, and uh, being a little bit faster, being able to have maximal strength for a little bit longer. That can be a matter of life and death in combat and certainly in law enforcement, too. And so that's mm -hmm. I feel like that's yeah. a gift I have to be able to that was a talent that I'm blessed with if I could help the right people then maybe that's what I'm supposed to do and that was the thinking and I did that for the last 10-15 years and now I'm just kind of I feel like I have I can teach other people I can do certification for coaching for this stuff where other people can do what I do uh, you don't need me anymore so I still you know, other coaches Greg Panora Taught yeah. seminars with me for many years. I've taught him, you know, he knows a lot and he knows enough to help anybody run fist step, you know. And um, so even if I move on and, and use whatever talents I have in, in a different way, you know, and if I move into the, to the political realm and the legal realm, which I would like to do, I don't feel like that this would be wasted. I want to be able to leave this behind as work that I've done, a positive thing that I've contributed in my life. And uh, that's kind of where I'm at now. It's not that I'm no longer going to coach powerlifting. I love it. But I need something to spend myself on that's worthy. You know? Yeah. In order to sleep at night, I need to know that I'm not wasting my my time. You know, I want to I want to be the uh, I want to be the servant that made that made more with the talents, not the one that buried them. You know what I mean? And uh, that's like why. That, yeah. Well, that's what I'm thinking, you know, like if you know the parable of the talents, like I don't want to be the one that hid that stuff away. I want to do what I want to use it, whatever I, I have, it, yeah. any, any good that I have, I want to be able to make the most of it. I don't, there's not, not much more in powerlifting other than work with individuals, which I did for many years. And I, I feel called in a different direction. I feel, you know, this is a platform that's just given me some voice that I could mm -hmm. use and that, that's the definition of what you're talking about that fear some people feel feel that calling but then they're scared or fear that they're not going to make it do you know what i mean and they're comfortable with just being a powerlifting coach but what if can turn to if then right what we just talked about and it's funny that's what was my last support group meeting the topic is what if and right. uh, one of the officers from texas threw us a hell mary and said but i don't think about what if anymore because you get one it what if leads to a thousand little other what ifs yeah. You know, what if I, I pick up today or what if I don't hit this bench, you know, and then all of a sudden that was a little other ifs. Well, what if I, I should have done this in my program or I should have never said this or text that toxic X, but you know, yeah. <laughs> if then, you know, what you're talking about is, uh, hold on a minute. Can, can, can you still hear me? Yeah. Yeah, okay. no, you're good. Okay. Yeah. What you're talking about is a, is a cognitive distortion, right? Yep. Um, so it's a kind of rabbit hole that we can go into a neurotic rabbit hole. And that is what like, so CBT is something called cognitive behavior therapy. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but that's basically, yeah. basically what the idea of it is, is to avoid those things. Yep. You know, like CBT you, lose, therapy, uh, yep. you lose your job and you're like, oh, I'm going to be homeless. Oh, my life's over. I'm gonna it's just a fucking whirlpool. Yeah. That rabbit hole. Yep. Go down the worst possible. It's like, well, what if instead let's reframe that here's an opportunity to do something different. You know, we're like, what's the next move I can make that's positive? 
And I, I know in real time, it's really hard to make those distinctions. But the problem is like, it is like viral when you make the negative choice and decide to go down that rabbit hole, that neurotic rabbit hole of what, oh my God, all this is, good. what if this happens? What if, what if good things happen? What if things work out? What if this shows you and everybody else what you're really made of? You know what I mean? Like, and I try to, I try to keep everything that way. And like to touch on what you were talking about with fear before, right? Like you're afraid to make the next choice. I'm afraid, but I do it anyway because I'm more afraid of God. So <laughs> it's not yeah, to say that yeah. it's like, that's I heavy. Fail. I might fail, but the thing is like, I have a responsibility and you know, for me personally, my my feeling that, you know, I'm here to, to serve God, to glorify him. And I made a lot of mistakes that didn't do that in my life. And I've been heading in a better direction for a long time. And it's better and better. But I know that I need to continue to do that. I feel, and the reason I know is because I feel it. <laughs> I feel a responsibility. I feel compelled. I have to do that. I have to. And like, I, I tell you what, like, when you when you make those right choices, when you do things that you're a little bit scared of or that, that you're a little reticent to do, you feel like, oh, it would be easier for me to just not do this. I spoke at Junior at a college, which is like a really good biology school in Pennsylvania. And uh, I was like, man, what am I going to talk to these dorks about? <laughs> <laughs> like, not to say it like that, but I mean, like, man, how am I going to connect with these people? I don't know. But there's something here for me. So I, I talked to him about the, the idea of entrepreneurship and like what's involved in that and having something that the world needs, you know, and feeling like you have to do it. And uh, so if you find something that the world needs that you're good at doing, that's probably your calling, you know, and that was kind of the, that's, that's a very brief summation of what I talked about. And afterwards, the guy who, the professor that invited me to speak was like, hey, uh, so like I confessed I know a little bit about you before I invited you. And <clears throat> it's really good for these people that have never had anyone talk to them except for in academia. And academia is for people that have no real life experience outside of oh. academia. So it's really good for them to hear someone like you who's actually been through it and lived a life. And um, he said, I, I own a nonprofit that teaches these type of classes in prison, exactly what you were talking about. And would you like to go into prison and teach this for me? And I was like, well, I don't think I'm allowed in prisons because of the <laughs> fact that I'm a felon. You were prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, well, if you, he said, well, if you get a pardon, you are. And I was like, okay, well, I've been looking into the idea of getting a pardon for the last 15, 20 years. And he's like, well, my friend just became the secretary of pardons in Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. He's like, so I can put you through to him and he can help you go through the whole process. So I've been doing that for most of the last wow. year. And can you imagine if you didn't show up, bro? Or you're just like, ah, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm just going to not give a shit, talk about something not, you know, useful and just, you know, say I was there. You know what I mean? Uh, like, that wasn't even, like, I didn't even get paid for that. Like, normally when I speak, I get paid, but I did it because it was something that I felt like somebody in this class might need to hear something I need to say. You know, somebody in this group, whatever. And it was a lot of them. <laughs> like, and uh, part of the bigger picture. Like you were supposed to be there. I always say that. Like God puts us in places that make things happen. You're supposed to be there and speak about what you spoke about to create. You know, maybe you, you sparked the mind of a, of, a, of a kid that was in that class, but you also created a new opportunity for yourself. 
And yeah. um, they, like, every, well, like I would say the world's so calculated that that happens. I think a lot of people too that are people of faith don't act because they feel they feel like that they're they're saved by grace, you know? And so it's not that they have to do good things. And and I mean, you don't, that's not how it works in my opinion. I don't believe that you, that's not, that's, you don't get saved by doing good things, but you know, faith without works is dead. You have to do good things. You know what I mean? It's not just sitting there and not doing harm is not, that's not helping anyone. Yeah. So try to like do the, if I feel called to do something, if I feel like, especially when I'm like, man, I really don't want to do this, but I should, <laughs> you know, I know that turning away from that kind of also is turning away from mercy and good things that yeah, are attacked. Right. I can't, you can't, it's a matter angel, of angel of mercy. Yeah. Like the idea that like, you know, I can't see this, if this is behind it. If it's behind this, you know what I mean? <laughs> but if I stand fire, <laughs> it's like, oh, now I can see. And it's it's like someone's telling you stand up a little higher, and you're like, oh no, it's scary up there. But really, what, what if that allows me to see the thing that was that was I couldn't see from where I was sitting, you know? So I do try to I try to stay keep that in my mind. I don't want to act like I'm some saint. I'm not. I do things wrong all the time that I regret. None of it is on the level of anything that that I've that I've had to deal with in the past, though. You know that I've had to deal with throughout my whole life. And as long as I'm willing to figure and look at myself and be self-aware and say, I did a thing that was shitty and be accountable. I don't continue to do it. When you continue to do that stuff is when you go, oh, that's no big deal. Or, oh, I had to do that. Mm. Or, oh, that was my ability. That wasn't my, that was someone else's fault. You point the finger and like, whenever you point the finger, it's always directly the opposite direction is the person responsible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And lack of accountability yeah people yeah. that's what's wrong with society today that's it man that's it how about like maybe you did get a tough break still you chose to do some some messed up shit and you gotta be accountable for it and you if you're not accountable for it. that's not helping you if someone allows you to not be accountable that's not helping you because you'll do it again you'll keep doing it until you acknowledge this is the reason that i have problems because these yeah. decisions I'm the one choosing these problems that, that I'm that I'm suffering with. Yep. You, you suffer in different ways. You can choose different problems. Like it sucks to get up in the morning and go and speak somewhere. It's hard, but it's way better mm -hmm. than other things I've had to do. So it's like you choose. You had to do in your life, yeah. Yeah, if you choose that, you know, you can choose the suffering that you have. And uh, if yeah. you embrace it ahead of time, you don't have to have the other suffering. If you try to hide and stall and, you know, Humans up. are the only creatures that suffer from stress, right? Uh, you know, as humans are the only creatures that suffer from stress. It's like animals either have a fight or flight, right? So sure. they're at the watering hole, right? And they're, and they're looking to get some water, yeah. and a predator comes and tries to take them off. That's the only time they 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 worry. Like we right. create our own misery, you know. Instead of, and I know a lot of people like this. Instead of counting your blessings, they're looking at other people. And asking why they have those blessings. Yeah, Instead of looking at what you have on your plate, you worry about what somebody else is eating. And I, you know, I never understood that because now you're creating your own misery. Like you have your own situation, but you're worried about what the next person is doing. You're yes. too preoccupied with what the next person is doing. You need to be focused on your journey and where you need to go in life. Oftentimes, and, uh, 
can't focus on their own. They don't have enough, you know, intellectual capacity to focus on their own stuff, and they're worrying about other people. Uh, yeah. Other people, exactly. That's, that's not your problem. That's not your concern. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I say that over and over again. Like, uh, you know, there's a saying, what you eat doesn't make me shit. And I, I, I live my life like that. Like, I, I'm concerned about what I'm doing, what the next step is. I can't worry about the person to the left or the right of me. I got to make sure that, that I'm right, you know, and I'm living in a righteous fashion. And, you know, and I'm continually trying to put my best foot forward. Uh, I think people are way too fixated on other things that they don't need to be worried about. Unless you're, like, you don't really need to judge what anyone else does. Thank you. That's what it comes to. Right. Focus just, on your journey. Yeah. Don't worry about the next man. Yeah. You, you do better focusing on yourself. I agree. And I'm not, that's not to say at all that some people don't have different obstacles to deal with than others and maybe more hardship to deal with than others, but everybody has hardship. And I think that certain people look at a certain situation. Oh, that person was born into having money. Oh, that person's in a different, uh, societal tier in terms of whatever and it's like you don't know what goes along with that with that exactly a lot of different ways no one has it easier no one has it everyone is suffering it's just different kinds of suffering yeah and the people that have that are born into a ton of money there's a reason the general wealth doesn't work you know i mean it's it if you look at like the success rates of people that are able to pass on generational wealth they typically lose it in one generation Mm mm-hmm why is that? Like, that's not to say you can't have good genetics for a certain talent, or like a financial talent, and that you have the parents that teach you that, hey, this is how this works. And then, sure, that's a benefit, you know? Yeah. But very easy for them to give into stuff and lose everything, you know? Yeah. And it's easier, I think. Like, obviously, it's easier to start at the top for sure, right? But how about you start that you start in the middle or at the top towards the middle and then you sink the bottom? <laughs> Because of that, because of the fact because that, you can, of run, that yeah. you can run from your suffering and get drug addictions and sex addictions, addictions and every, everything else that you can try to use to fill this void in your gut. You know, we have a, we have a purpose-shaped hole in our hearts as a country. You know, right now the United States does. I feel like if people were seeking their purpose, you know, and purpose is, I can tell you, I don't know what your purpose is, but I promise it's not setting shit on fire. You know, it's not hurting people. It's not. Exactly. That's what it comes down to. It's not those things. It's not harmful things. Um, and it's up to the individual to, to seek out and find what your purpose is. But that's the only thing that's going to fill that hole. Not yeah. women, not you know, alcohol, not any type of other things that you can force in there. It doesn't fill it up. You just want more and more and more. <laughs> it makes the hole get bigger. It makes more bigger. room. Yeah. Amen. There. I was like, you keep trying to fill other things in there. And it just gets bigger and bigger until eventually, you know, it can consume you and change who you are as a person. You know, I, I really think that a, a large amount of our problems could be solved if everybody took individual responsibility for their position and their, and their act and the decisions that they make. You know, yes. I believe sovereignty of the individual. You know? and that's I, literally, that's it right there, man. That and... That could be a whole nother podcast, right? You know, that could be a whole nother. I mean, individual responsibility, you know, the, you know, and yeah, everyone's environment is different, but it also comes down to the individual because you look at guys that have made it from neighborhoods like that, like Allen Iverson, right? 
Ugh. one of the best marshawn lynch you know you, you, they made it to the top of their craft you know they could have got sucked down that rabbit hole you know you it's, don't really know more about the background of them but to be a professional AI. athlete at that level you know but yeah i feel like ai is a sad story where he had all that talent and just kind of because of other because but, of ability and a lack of responsibility look yeah a lot of outside influence there short his career i think in the damn Korean uh, basketball league like <laughs> How does yeah. one of the players of all time end up yeah. working exactly. from you know podunk team? And that's a good, that is a really good example. As he a is Knicks, a, as, a Knicks fan, as a Knicks fan, I'm more excited to watch him as a young kid, as one of the you know favorite point guards of all time, to be like you know you don't know what he's going to do because also look at his physical attributes, tiny, you know, yeah. never going to do good in the league, and and he kills it. So, well, I was really like you know he was on. He was on the Sixers, you know. Right. Yeah. It was amazing to be able to watch him, like to go to games and sit there and watch him. And then some of my some of my friends would do that. And uh he had he lived in the Hyatt on the top floor right on Columbus Boulevard, like right near where I lived. You know, so I would see him all the time. And I can remember thinking like God, imagine what it's like to have that kind of money. And, <laughs> and he blew it all. You know, he blew it all, yeah. Go up to practice, well, you know, and it was funny. It's fun. The interviews are funny. Oh, it's practice. We're talking about practice. Talking about practice. Practice. You just kept saying it, and like, yeah, practice, dude. Because there's more to it than just showing up practicing. It's about being a leader. And uh, he didn't want to accept that role. And I feel like that. How many times does that sort of does that sort of stuff present where you see someone that refuses to accept, like they're given this gift. And they refuse to accept it. And that's, you know, eventually it's not like he's going to be like broke and, you know, in the gutter, but because he's always going to have some talent that's amazing. And the fact that he is who he is, he could probably live off that forever. But I always look at situations like that. What could that person have done? What role could they have played? Yeah. Think, yeah. look at something like a, like a Jordan. Could have went that direction and been immortal. You know? Yeah. Now, the potential. Those of us that aren't alive during that weren't alive during the peak of his career are already forgetting who Iverson even was. You know, there's not that substantive impact. That is true. Like a I mean, he, he had a cultural effect, too. I think he was the guy that kind of, what you see now on the basketball court with these young guys that are tatted up and, you know, yeah. expressive like that, um, he was the, the cultivator of that because before him, there was nobody walking around with braids and tattooed all over the place. Um, he yeah. made it popular culture i think for for guys to really just be who they were you know nba had a look everybody was like you know clean cut um no tattoos everybody kind of looked the same and he was like the first guy to kind of you know embrace yeah. the culture and yeah, bring it to the forefront you know there was a few rodman too there was a couple that were like that but yeah yeah but rodman did it in a way like i don't really feel like kids from an urban environment really related to a Robin. rod yeah, because Robin was doing the painted nails and the dresses and all of that. I really feel like a lot of urban guys were just like, I don't know about this dude. He was the first guy to really be out there. But I think AI was the, was the one to embrace like the hip hop culture, you know, the inner city feel, you know, like he's the reason why they have a dress code with the NBA because he was coming with, you know, baggy outfits and do-rags, you know, chains and jewelry all over the place. And they're like, no, 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 this is a business kid. Don't come here. <laughs> 
you know, looking like a hoodlum because, you know, it, 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 in, 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 in essence, it is a business. And but he brought that to the forefront, you know? How about Kim Jong-un wanted to meet, he wanted to speak to, he only would talk to Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I thought that was very odd, but, you know, I mean, I loved Rodman when Rodman was playing. I think he was the first guy to really, um, his work ethic was was unbelievable because that dude could party in Vegas for a weekend and come back and give you crazy. 22, reboard, uh, 22 rebounds and and, you know, just be the best defensive player out there. And I've, you know, leave it all on the court. You know, we party all and, week. Come in, yeah. And... Like he's the only guy I know that could do that. You know, you know, you'd see him on, you know, running out there with NWO, and then next, you know, I mean, he's <laughs> playing basketball. You know, and <laughs> I'm boggling. You're right. That's the, and that's yeah. I mean, hey, I'm not. You know, I don't have. I don't know what people are supposed to do with their lives. I know. I mean, it's pretty obvious what they're not supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah, when you have something like that, I mean, it's like, you know, like there's certain people that it's like, in spite, they're good in spite of what they do, not because of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Hey, man. You know? Yeah. And yeah. It's, a, it's a weird situation. Well, on that note, Swede, um, I think the topic of this podcast, and I'm glad you kind of just said it five minutes ago, is everyone suffers. You know, it's how do we, how, how do, what, and what Jay said in the beginning, what path are we going to go? Are we going to go left or right? And are we going to, forge our way through maybe there's another left or right from that left or right you know so but before we wrap before we wrap up we just got a few more questions i'm actually kind of pumped to see what you're going to say they're uh personal questions to get the listeners to know you more so we start basic and then we go a little more uh, in depth so mm -hmm. first one and jay if you have any extra ones to kind of get, get uh that you think of, yeah, no, to, no. To chime in follow your lead what um favorite movie or two if it comes to your head what are you going with Wow, that's tough because I, I actually I love you know, I'm a huge fan of movies. I like I like more like I like allegorical movies, I like movies that have some sort of deeper meaning. But man, that's really tough. I don't wanna I don't wanna pick one movie, but I I I'll say I love Fight Club for what it was. I was another one, bro. Yeah, Fight Club, at, yeah. At least four or five people yeah. Fight Club because of the meaning. Fight Club. <clears throat> yeah, because there's more there. Because you can watch. There's more to it. Yep. There's more. There's more. I like depth. And um, we had Brandon Lilly on, and you kind of remember oh, yeah. you know, the big tattoos and everything. Brandon said the same thing. And gave the. That's who he was. That was his. Uh, me, you know, his meaning. It really relates to him, and he has that tattooed on him. You know, he's a good friend. Movie. We we did seminars together for many years. Yeah, he said the same thing. Did the seminars forever. He's a good dude. I love him. Yeah, I mean, like, so as far as movies go, movies are tough because there's so many good movies. Like, 15 movies right now. I'm thinking, I'm like, if I name one more, it's like, okay, well, it's like Fight Club plus whatever I say next. And it's like, uh, oh, man, I really, that's something that, like, off the top of my head, I would really want to think it through, you know? But there's, okay, so... It, it, I guess it would depend on the genre and what I was trying to get out of it. Reading is a little bit easier. I read more than I watch movies for sure. But favorite mm -hmm. book? Favorite book. Going to be probably a movable feast from Hemingway is my number one favorite book. Um, okay. And that's, that's, that's about his time during the expatriate in Paris with his first wife, Hadley. And it's just, it's just, it's not really, it's kind of anticlimactic. There's not a lot of crazy stuff that happens, but it's about just the experience of being married to someone, loving them, trying to pursue 
you know, a career trying to make some sort of positive impact and just the struggles of surviving as a human. And uh, so that would be like probably my, that's my first favorite. My second favorite book would be uh, probably the, the Unabridged Journals of Sylvia Plath. I bring those, both of those books with me everywhere. I've read them a million times. Also Farewell to Arms, which is another Hemingway book I love. Uh, I like Clive Barker books. I like, obviously I love poetry. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a writer of poetry. Uh, and, for, and for more, for something that's a little bit more modern day, that's applicable to everything that's going on right now, there's something called The Coddling of the American Mind that is a book I think every American should read. It's about how a lot of this, how a lot of these cognitive distortions uh, initially happened. Uh, it's by wrote that? American Mind. Coddling uh, of the American written by uh, Jonathan Haidt, which is H-A-I-G-H-T, I believe it might be. I think it's H-A-I-G-H-T. He's, uh, he co-authored it with a guy named Greg Lukanoff. Uh, Greg Lukanoff is an attorney, and I believe, and he, he's also, he's a professor. I think he's a law professor. And, and John, Jonathan Haidt is a, a very well-known uh, business professor. He, well, he works at a, at a business school, at a NYU School of Business. Uh, but he, he's a psychology professor also. He's a, they, they both have some background in psychology and <clears throat> super interesting to me to see how a lot of this stuff was predicted that's happening now. And like while it was happening, it was kind of obvious that this is going to go in a bad direction. But I think that most of us were like, oh, well, you know, look who it is. Oh, it'll go away. Oh, it's, you know, these dudes with receding hairlines and pink hair. And, not, <laughs> and you don't realize that <laughs> once that sort of stuff gets, gets electricity and gets empowered, you know, and gets like this, the approval of society, which is largely what's happening. Um, the idea is that you can sum it up in this, like prepare the, prepare the child for the road. Don't prepare the road for the child. In other words, or what happens, you have a kid, you love your kid, you want your kid to be safe. Safe spaces are not the way for your kid, you know, right. your kid to deal with way for your kid to be safe. I like that. I like that a lot. And another yeah. question that just came to my head, I'm, we don't, don't give the explanation. I just want to see what comes to your head. Ready? Freud or Young? Yeah. Okay. Um, one meal to eat for the rest of your life. What's it going to be? Every every single day, same meal. All day, every day. Yep. It could be healthy, unhealthy. This is what you're going with. Healthy, unhealthy doesn't matter. <laughs> unhealthy. Yeah, it uh, could well, be anything. I don't know, man. It's tough because I would say sushi, but then there's so many other things I like. My girl makes a lot of meals that I love that are not sushi. Thus, it's tough. <laughs> All right, so one healthy meal. I guess one healthy meal for the gains. Cheese steaks, pizzas. Oh, that would a healthy meal would be sushi. Sushi. Yeah, hell yeah, man. Are I you a big sp- red meat guy? I like tuna. No, I mean I eat mostly chicken, but I okay. do eat. I eat a lot of red meat. I love red meat. I eat, like okay. usually red meat meal a day, but mostly most of my proteins chicken. Chicken. It's one. Been, um, I like gag on chicken when I eat it, but yeah, shakes and just drink them. Chicken shakes. Oh, you <laughs> so, what? Yo, who started that? Was that um, Vanilla Gorilla or what's his name? Uh, Blaine Summers? Or was he the one who brought that up? I remember listening to that on a Mark Bell podcast. I've been, I've been drinking chicken since before he was lifting as far as I know. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm gonna say like I don't know how people drink I'm chicken. Of that. It's crazy, man. I tried it once. I almost fucking died. <laughs> Yo, you should have been there. I wish I had it on video. That I had to be like ten years ago when I was eighteen. Um, yeah, it's crazy. You got to hold your hold your nose, man. But if you get it right, it's like I can drink a pound of chicken in like thirty seconds. Just up a chicken breast takes me like literally an hour and i'm gagging the whole time because i've been doing it for 25 years right. Eat, yeah <laughs> like forced in person. Doing it longer than i'm alive bro <laughs> you know what i mean it's tough to you, you develop you, you figure out ways to make it happen if it's important so that's you know i just get it down when i was doing training working with clients and stuff i would drink i would drink chicken i kept the blender like i would do a full 300 grams of protein so it would be like roughly three pounds of chicken breast I'll have that already done in the fridge and I'll run it over to the blender and just spin it up real quick so it would be even and pound one and then have my two oh. cups of microwave and oh. eat it clients to eat the rice and then go back and do that again, you know, after my Bro. next step. You know. Crazy man. Oh. The easiest way to get but yeah. Favorite food, sushi. I love ice cream too. Um I love sushi. I could eat a piece of uh, you know, I also like Thai food, like uh, like that. You know, in terms of favorite meal, you know, pizza, cheesesteaks. You know what I mean? <laughs> All that good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, cheesesteaks in there. Re recovery is not in the picture here. All right. So every single day, you have the same to do one main lift and one accessory movement. What are you doing? Every single day. Yeah. Uh, Recovery is not in the picture. So you'll be, you know, you, you, you're not going to be as sore or banged up at, as you would be every day. You had one lift to do forever. They said, sweet, you can only do one one main lift and one accessory lift for forever. What are you going with? Uh, probably safety squat bar squats. Because mm. you get, like some, that. get some sharing force. So it will replace that lifting. And uh, obviously, you're the top. Yeah. <clears throat> I did. I did. Uh, I went through like through quarantine here. I probably did over the course of nine months. I did nothing but squat and bench. Nothing. Else. No assistance. <laughs> I see a lot of the video. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the videos of that man and the sumo. The the sumos are fucking strong as shit. The deadlifts. The sumos again. I just started pulling. I, I saw that recently, right? And like within three months now, my deadlift is right back where it was. So. What's it at now? Well, what I'm working with is like 500 pounds, but my best deadlift is I've done 765 conventional, but that's before I broke my spine. So that's we another story. Jeez, we didn't even hit that. I had two pieces of bones removed from my spine. I had a root nerve oh. part of a disc. That shit, and I I built right. It took me three years to get because I took it slow and did it the way I was supposed to. Mm -hmm. There you go, the way you're supposed to. And what what accessory movement would you do with the safety bar squats? Like uh, after that. <clears throat> Um, the one accessory movement, I would probably have to be a pressing movement for it to make sense. But in terms of uh, if that's all I'm ever going to be able to do, yeah. I would say pressing movement. So something maybe, maybe I would do bench presses assistance or something like that. Because I do think you need to have strong pecs in order because you need that that opposing muscle group to keep the upper, the upper back strong. And I like it. I like it. Honestly, right. my back is huge and it stayed huge and i didn't do any rowing i didn't do any pull-ups i didn't do drugs nothing but squats and benches and like that I, it, you know it's so easy to maintain muscle once you have it it's hard once to have it there, yeah. but once you yeah once you have it it's like you really can switch to just training squats 
little bit or just train a bench and squat, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I wouldn't recommend that someone do that, but I wanted to, I needed something again. It was a situation when I was doing lockdown here now. I was at the time I was single in the beginning of it, I lived by myself, you know? And uh, so it was like isolation all over again. So I was like, man, I really need something to focus on. Fucking back in the <laughs> hole. I, I've been here before. I can get through this again. Yeah. <laughs> but now I'm a little, I got a little more toys to play with. Um, yeah, I got everything I need here. Exactly. Fi- final so, question. Final question. Oh, my bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, like the building's bigger than the whole cell block. Exactly. So. <laughs> <laughs> you got more than you got more than just a pencil and a little piece of paper. Right. I got everything I need. You know, my needs are met. What was the last question? Final, I final question. You come to New York. Me and Jay were like, "Yo, Swede, we lift up a tarp. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a time machine. Any time in the past, it could be twenty years, it could be two hundred years ago. But now people have been asking, can we go to the future? So we're gonna add that there. Me and Jay just worked on it. We're able to go to the future now." Where are you going? I will go like, I will go probably like, you know, something around 2000 years ago, Jerusalem and meet Jesus. Hey, that's a good answer. And that that. that was actually, that wasn't the last question because another question from that is if you had one person to hang out with dead or alive, who would it be? And I think he was answering. He's alive, but it would be Jesus. Yeah. And there we have it, boys and girls. Yeah. Um, first of all, I'm gonna say, wow, uh, I definitely needed that today. Um, yeah, had a even though I had a great weekend, you know, once you once you do something great, your mind starts playing tricks with you on a little bit. So, um, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much, man, for your strengths, experience, and hope, and uh, you know, just people, places, and things, right, bro? Um, thank you so much, man. Uh, you, everyone knows where to find me. Um, Frank at reps underscore four underscore responders. Jay, where can they find you at? Uh, you can find me on Instagram, the real jump man, Jay. And Swede, where can they find you? If, uh, it's MF Swede on Instagram. Um, I'm pretty easy to, to find, so you could just Google me and I'll give you a million different Swede burns. It'll give you a bunch of different ways to get a hold of me. But, gotcha. uh, but yeah, it was awesome to meet you guys, man. It was a great conversation, so thank you. Oh, yeah, man. This was a, probably one of my favorite podcasts of all time right here. You, you had a lot of insightful stuff. Um, I'm glad I was that. expecting a good podcast, but this was like a way above my expectations. So yeah, I wasn't expecting any of this. Coming out, I man. really wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think it was going to get this deep. We got really deep. So um, yeah, very, very grateful for this conversation today, man. It, Me too. It's Thank great. It's great when you see like Brian Shaw, World's Strongest Man, or Swede, you know, uh, 2016 Powerlifting Coach of the Year, fifth set. But you don't know what, how, really, how, what they got, what they went through to get there. And like you said, can't judge a book by its cover. You see a crackhead in quotes with police terms used. Well, he mm-hmm. wasn't always a crackhead. You know, you don't know what he was before that. You know, no one knows anything about anybody. So I think we hit that today. And thanks again, bro. Um, we'll be in contact and uh, yeah, after have, a, that. have a safe day, man. What will be after that too? You know, that's the other thing. Right, it's not, exactly. What's coming after? It's not forever. That depression, that alcoholism, that addiction, it's not forever if you don't let it be. It's not a destination. You know I mean, these are transitional things and they can change for the better. You know, everything can. Absolutely. Thanks, God. Thank you, guys. All right, brother. Have a good Have a day. Good one, man. See ya. Good day. Bye.